<laughs> See, and I, and I made a mistake because last week I told you all to sit down because we didn't repeat the statement of faith, right? But we're going to this morning, so if you'll stand back up. I don't want you to get too comfortable. So we are in the middle of going through our statement of faith, even during the Advent season. just so happens that um, the fourth statement of faith is about the person of Christ. And so we're talking about uh, Jesus during this Advent season. So would you repeat after me as we say what we believe about our Savior? We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. One person in two natures, Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. And you may be seated. You're not allowed to get too comfortable. If you do fall asleep, we still have blue chairs. We can replace the one you're sitting in if necessary. Um, last week we talked about Jesus being the bread of life. And how He is, because He's the bread of life, He offers freely to us. He gives and doesn't take. Um, and so if, if He gives His righteousness to us, then in one sense we should give to other people. And we talked about it in all of our relationships. Any relationship you can think of is your, is your main primary focus, how can I give to this relationship or how can I take from it? And, and the application of us being conformed into the image of Christ is we should be thinking I need to be conformed into the image of the bread of life who freely gave himself. So this morning we're going to look at what it means that Jesus is our Messiah. Uh, a word that um, is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the same word is Christ. simply means anointed one. And we're going to really answer three, four questions this morning in order. First of all, what is a Messiah? Second of all, what do we think, or why do we think that Jesus is the Messiah? Um, what kind of Messiah is He? Because there were different ideas of what that looked like uh, in that day. And then the final question is, so what? What does that have to do with me today in Western North Carolina in the 21st century? Um, so the first question, what is a Messiah? Uh, literally, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, it means someone who was anointed. Uh, and it referred to the high priest... He was an anointed one. He was a Messiah. Uh, it also referred to the king of Israel. He was an anointed one. Remember Samuel anointed Saul and then anointed David. So the high priest and the king were both anointed ones. They were, uh, in Hebrew, uh, a Messiah. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament would translate those words, that idea, as the word Christos, where we get the word Christ. So Jesus was, we would say, he was called Jesus Christ. It began to, to be just another appellation, part of his name, uh, kind of Jesus Christ. We kind of didn't think about it necessarily as Jesus the Messiah, but just part of a name became who he was, what he did. Um, 
And so because it referred to both a priest and a king, there were some before Jesus' day and during Jesus' day that were actually looking for two messiahs. It seems that maybe the Essenes, those folks that hung around the Dead Sea, were looking for two messiahs. Um, not unheard of. You read through the book of Zechariah, it almost seems like he's calling for two messiahs, someone who would continue in the line of Aaron, someone who would continue in the line of David. And so Jesus shows up, and we know standing on this side of, of the cross that, yeah, he, he did fulfill both of those roles, the high priestly role, but also the kingly role as well. Um, God spoke of one who would come in the future. Psalm 2, for instance, spoke of a Messiah, an anointed one. Uh, Daniel 9, again speaking of distant future, one that would come, an anointed one, a Messiah. And so Israel in the time of Jesus was looking for this person, this one who would come. And so why do we think that, that Jesus is the Messiah? Why do we get that in, in our minds? Well, in 2 Samuel, first of all, in chapter 7, um, God speaks to David. And he gives to David what we call, again, on this side of the cross, the Davidic covenant. Uh, this idea that um, <laughs> David's line would continue. Um, and so, beginning in, say, verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Who's he talking about? David. He's talking to David, but who's the son? Solomon, right? And literally, Solomon did those things. Solomon did build a house. But then God doesn't just stop there. He goes on. It says in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And I don't know about you, but those are... Those are big words. Forever. That's a big word. That's a, that's a long, long time. Now, I find it difficult to believe, knowing what God knows of us and our sin and our inability to carry through anything, that God could make a promise like that. Your house, in other words, your dynasty will endure forever, that your kingdom, the sphere of your rule, that your throne, the authority to rule. How in the world could God make that promise? Especially knowing that God had already told the people under Moses that when you mess up, I'm going to remove you. There's going to be punishment. There's going to be death and disease and famine and drought and enemies. And eventually, I can remove you from the land. So how could God make that promise? And yet we read through the history that not only did was Solomon, David's son, king, but his son became king, and his son became king, and his son became king, and his son. Eventually, someone's got to just have girls, right? 
I mean, just the odds are eventually, right, there's not going to be or someone's going to die or, right, someone's going to... I mean, you look at the northern kingdom and there was assassination after assassination after us. No dynasty lasted in the northern kingdom beyond two or three generations. So how is it possible that the southern kingdom continued on for another almost 500 years before we finally see God kind of step in and say, you know what, I've kind of had enough of your nonsense. And he removes them to Babylon. And yet we read in in Matthew's gospel and genealogy that line continued. Sons kept being born. And God brought them back and no one really sat on a throne. And yet sons kept being born. And sons kept being born. And yet it appeared that the line was broken. It appeared that that maybe God really wasn't up to His promises. And yet we read in Luke what I read a little while ago. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him... And notice these words that God promised to David. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Those same three promises to David, throne, a house, and a kingdom. And notice that Mary didn't say, what are you talking about with these words, throne, house, and kingdom? That wasn't her question, right? Her and everybody else that would have heard that would have known, would have thought, Oh, these are those words that not only did God say to David, but the prophets repeated over and over again, Jeremiah especially. Those ideas of, I'm going to send someone who's going to establish the throne, who's going to build the kingdom, who's going to have the house continue. God uses that language over and over again. And so we think Jesus is the Messiah because God uses the terms for one who would sit on the throne, who would be king. And we like that. I like that. I like for someone who's going to reign and rule like David. Who's going to get rid of all my enemies. Right? I like that. I think the disciples liked that. I think the general people were hoping that that's who he would be in reference to the Romans. And so we have to ask that question. The third question, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And if we look in Mark chapter 8, we get an idea of at least what the disciples thought that He would be. Beginning in verse 27, Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He questioned His disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? So tell me, guys, what's the, what's the gossip mill going around about who I am? What's, what are they saying? They told him, John the Baptist, right? Some thought he'd risen from the dead. You're, you're John the Baptist. Come back. That's, that's a, somehow going to be a good thing. Others, Elijah, the one who's going to be a forerunner of the king. But others, one of the prophets. But he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, 
the Greek term of Messiah. You are the Messiah. You're the one we expected, right? And so all the disciples gather around and Jesus gets high fives. But, I mean, Peter gets high fives because he said the right thing, right? That's the right answer. Right? If it was a question on a test, right, we all think Peter got that question right. And then this odd phrase in verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Why would he do that? How would he do that? Well, we get a hint in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this Messiah, this one that Daniel talked about, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. There wasn't any figure of speech. They understood what he's saying. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Messiahs don't do that. <laughs> You've got it wrong. Jesus, wait a minute. Messiahs, right, they're anointed. They sit on a throne. They have a kingdom, right? It's us, not the Romans anymore. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but... My thoughts of, of, of Satan and one day when God sets all things right, Satan's not a part of that. And that should cause us a little bit of consternation, right? In other words, Peter's understanding of Messiah, understanding of who Jesus is at this point in time is not sufficient. If, if, if the God of the universe says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, in other words, you fail to understand who I am, and therefore you've got faith in the wrong thing, and therefore your faith is, is not sufficient. The object of your faith is incorrect. And that should make us step back and go, well, what do I think of Jesus? Do I have the wrong Messiah? Because the Messiah that, that Jesus came to be was one that was not going to necessarily deliver them from Rome, but deliver them from a far greater enemy, which was their sin, which was themselves, their understanding of God and His ways and His purposes. Jesus was first of all... See, in their mind, Jesus the Messiah was going to be first of all king, and he will be. But first of all, he was a priest. He was the one that would offer a sacrifice for his people. And they didn't get that, or they didn't really want that. Because the pressing issue was Rome. Right? Just like for us. The pressing issue is usually not sin. The pressing issue is our own government, or somebody else, or our neighbor who's bothering us, or our spouse who annoys us. The pressing issue is always something else. Right? And Jesus knew that the pressing issue is what goes on in here. And so as Messiah, He came first to deliver us, to redeem us, to save us, not from Rome or from the United States or from our spouse or our neighbor or our boss or the media or the culture. He came to save us from ourselves. He was first a priest and then he was a king. 
So what? What do we do? What does it, what does it matter that he's the Messiah? Okay, we, we, we got that. We celebrate that. We do that every Easter, right? We, we celebrate Good Friday, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We've been saved from our sins. Day to day, day in and day out, what do we do with the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? And that we are called to be like him. Now, let me just dispel any myths. He doesn't call you to be anybody's Messiah. He's done that. He saved us. But if we're to be like him, what does that look like? If we're to respond to that, what does that look like? Well, first of all, it looks like that we celebrate that and that we worship him because he came not for what we think we needed, but for what we actually needed. We celebrate and we worship because He came not in who we wanted Him to be, but what we actually needed. And that's rather amazing, because if it was up to me, I'm sure God and Jesus would look a lot different. He would act differently. He would be much more impatient with my enemies. And He would be and he would be much more lenient in his standards with me. Right? And so we worship and we celebrate that he is who he is and not who we think he should be. Which leads into the second thing. Number two, we guard against making him into our own image. You see, Peter had an understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And Jesus, that's who you are. So much so that Peter was willing to get in Jesus' face and rebuke him when Jesus didn't measure up to Peter's standard. And how often do we do that? How often do we make God into our own image? One of the ways you might be able to tell if you're guilty of doing that is if God hates and dislikes the same things and the same people that you hate and dislike. Some of that may be true. We are supposed to dislike and hate sin, but sometimes we assume God's going to judge the people that we want Him to judge in the way He wants them to judge it, instead of depending upon the cross for that judgment. We have to guard our hearts against making God into our own image. One of the ways we do that is by spending time in His Word and learning what He's actually like and not what we think He's like or not what we hear someone else tell us He's like, either on the news or what we read or from well-meaning people in this body who've, who learned something a long, long time ago and it just stuck with them. Someone didn't know and told us things about God that just weren't true. And we have a hard time jettisoning those things if we've bought into them. So, are we spending time in this book learning what he's actually like and worshiping that and not the, our own image of what we think he's like? Number three, do we give people what they actually need in love versus what they want? And this is the hard part. If we're to be like God and He gave us what we needed, not what we wanted, do we do that for other people? Are we willing to love them by giving them what they need and not just what they want? And that takes time and discernment and getting to know one another because often what it seems that they need is not really what they need. There's a deeper issue that's going on. 
And do we just scratch the surface? Or do we go down deep and say, what is the real issue? What idols have you built into your life that's causing the behavior that you're exhibiting? You see, our goal should always be not just to change people's behavior, but to introduce them to Christ. Parents, as little ones, we do mold and shape behavior, but at some point in time, far earlier than we probably all would like, the goal of parenting is to minister to the kid, our kids' hearts, not their behavior. If all we're doing is, is trying to mold behavior, then we've removed the gospel from their life. Because the gospel is about changing their heart. And that's hard. It's hard for me as a parent. For most people that I know as a parent, it's difficult. Because it's so much easier to say, don't do that, than to dig into the issue of, why are you doing that? And to spend the time that it takes to work through the issues of why you shouldn't do that. Ultimately, why is that harmful? And that takes a lot of time and energy, and sometimes it's way easier to say, don't do that. And so are we giving people what they need in love? Good news. Because just behavior modification is not really good news. It just sets us up to, to, to let other people tell us what to do and when to do it. Right? Versus dealing with our heart. And we never ultimately grow up and learn to deal with life. Some of us as adults need to buy into the truth of the good news of the gospel. It's not about behavior modification. It's about a changed life through a relationship with God. And a dependence upon Him. I don't want you to act well, I want you to know Jesus. Finally, the last thing, which may be a little obscure, but that if we're going to be like the Messiah, we need to keep our word. See, God made a promise really to Abraham, the first passage that I read. And then to David and to his descendants over and over, God made promises that he kept. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And if we're to be like him, we need to be faithful. We need to keep our word in our relationships. The biggest thing we can do, the biggest evidence that we trust in a a God is as we interact with people, believers and non-believers, as they go, that guy keeps his word. He's faithful. He's consistent. He He doesn't shy away when the going gets tough. He doesn't pull back his promises when, well, ah, you know, I didn't know that was going to happen. Granted, God has the advantage of being all-knowing and all-powerful, omniscient, and he sees in the future. But how many opportunities did God's people give him to say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of this. And yet he remained faithful. Not only to David, but to Solomon, and to his son, and to his son, and to his son. Even when those sons were horrible, and evil. 
He said the line is going to continue. Now there may have been consequences for that person in that generation, but His promise never failed. And so as God's people, ultimately, if we're like Him, if we're like the Messiah, are we faithful in our relationships? And so as we think about and celebrate Christmas and the coming of the Promised One, we should rejoice. We should celebrate. Because who could have thought that this is how God would fix our problem? That He would actually come and dwell with us. None of the other religions of the time, that was just not something that was heard of. God didn't do that. They were aloof. They were separate. They were distant. They were not like us. And God became like us. And so we celebrate. But we need to keep in the back of our mind, as we celebrate, are we guarding our own heart? Are we treating people the way they need to be treated in love? And ultimately, are we being faithful as God's people? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, I praise You for being one who is faithful and keeps His promises. God, I pray for us, because it is difficult at times to be faithful over the long haul because life happens and people disappoint us and frustrate us. Situations bring about that makes it really difficult for us to be faithful because, as we sang, we're sinners. So, God, we ask that You would... um, As you've promised, help us to see how you work all things to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And God, help us to know that purpose for each of us in our lives. And through the power of your Spirit, Spirit, help us to be faithful in doing that. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.